from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. This weekend, I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The final 2021 production numbers are in from USDA. We'll have a deep dive into the numbers. Two major reports on fertilizer this week as the average feed grain farmer is facing fertilizer costs up $128,000 for 2022. And fertilizer price that's gone up um, somewhere close to $200 an acre for this next year for some producers. And the revenue being generated is not, not offsetting that. And in John's world, cyber war could come to your farm. Well, we have a lot of news to get to this weekend as farmers start the year with growing concerns. Inflation now setting at the highest rate since 1982. Nitrogen costs 80% higher than last year. And the ethanol stocks at a 47-week high due to lower demand for gas. Amid all of this, USDA releasing its final numbers on last year's crop production and what the future could hold for this year's. For 2021, USDA leaving the corn at yield unchanged in its report this week at a record high 177 bushels per acre. That's 5.6 bushels per acre higher than 2020, but calling for an increase in harvested acres. And Iowa, once again, the top yielding state at 205 bushels per acre, beating out Illinois. USDA raised yields for soybeans as well to 51.4. That's up less than a bushel from 2020. The crop was record large, eclipsing the previous high in 2018 even with lowered harvested acres. Illinois winning when it came to soybean yields at 64 bushels an acre, beating out Nebraska by one. And corn and soybean stocks coming in above the trade guess. Corn pegged at 1.5 billion bushels on exports being lowered 75 million bushels. But corn used for ethanol was actually raised 75 million. Soybeans, that's 350 million bushels on lower production, crush exports, as well as stocks. And wheat world stocks are raised 30 million bushels to 628 million. They are still down 26% from last year and the lowest since 2013. USDA saying that wheat sales and shipments continue to be sluggish with wheat uncompetitive in several markets. One thing markets really have been watching very closely lately, the weather in South America. And USDA did make a cut in production there. USDA lowering soybean production for three key areas. Brazil down 5 million tons from December due to dry conditions. Argentina was reduced 3 million. Paraguay down 1.5 million tons. Well, the pressing issue right now for farmers as well as the markets watching inflation. The consumer price index this week rose 7% in December. It's the fastest pace in 40 years or since June 1982. For example, used vehicle prices in December were 37% higher than a year ago. Gas up nearly 50% and food prices, those climbed 6.3% over the past 12 months. Officials attribute the surge of pandemic-related issues like a shortage of workers clogging the supply chains, and that is what they say is causing empty shelves. And empty shelves at the grocery store is becoming a growing issue right now, with shortages reported of meat, bread, milk, as well as other essential food items in recent weeks. U.S. grocery stores typically have 5 to 10 percent of their items out of stock at any given time. But according to the Consumer Brands Association, the unavailability rate is now hovering around 15 percent. The National Grocers Association says many of its members have less than 50 percent of their normal workforce. Well, the Supreme Court weighing in on ethanol this week, denying a petition to review a lower court's ruling that vacated a plan to allow expanded sales 
of E15. The petition was filed in October by Growth Energy. The lower court ruling had said that EPA under President Trump exceeded its authority when it granted year-round sales of gas with a higher ethanol blend. Growth Energy CEO Emily Score saying it was disappointed with the decision, but that it would continue to explore all potential avenues to make access to E15 a reality. Well, some good news on the trade front with a new market for U.S. pork opening up in India. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack and Trade Representative Catherine Tai announcing the agreement, saying the news follows the successful revitalization of the U.S.-India trade policy forum held in New Delhi in November. Well, the Ag Secretary also talking about trade this week in the American Farm Bureau Convention in Atlanta. Vilsack talked about the importance of building trust among farmers when it comes to trade. But here's the deal. Our Chinese friends are about $16 billion light over what they committed to purchase. And that's why Ambassador Tai, our U.S. Trade Representative, continues to converse with China about the necessity of living up totally and completely to the Phase 1 trade agreement, uh, making up that $16 billion deficit over the course of the next several years. Now, Vilsack says that they are also working on sanitary and phytosanitary barriers that still exist in the Chinese relationship. All right, that's it for the news. Another winter storm making its way across the country this week. We'll have a check of weather next. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Yurosavik. Matt, another winter storm making its way across the country this weekend. But these constant shots of moisture lately seem to be helping some areas of California. Yet the West still covered in drought right now. Yeah, time. that's right. Still a lot of drought going on from the central plain states and on to the west coast and you can see that with uh, regards to our root zone here still a lot of dry soil there through places in Texas, Oklahoma and Kansas as we head towards the west again still a lot of snowpack up there from those recent winter storms so that will help as it melts heading into the springtime but we do need a lot of help here even up into the Dakotas and the upper Midwest as well a lot of moisture though right in the Mississippi River Valley there that is going to help a lot of growing locations down in that neck of the woods as we head towards uh, the springtime. So here's a look at our drought monitor a little bit here will be helped as that winter storm moisture gets factored in heading into this upcoming week. And then we're looking again back to the west, not as extensive as extreme and exceptional drought as we had, but still some areas of severe drought and a lot of areas still in a moderate drought. So looking for more precipitation out to the west and hopefully we will get some by the end of this winter, but heading into much Monday, that big dip in the jet stream, colder air filtering in. That's behind our system, which is going to be exiting over the north and east after it dumped a ton of snow as we head through the weekend from the upper Midwest into the deep south. Even some icing concerns there. And then it's going to move up the east coast and warmer, more mild air back there to the west. As we head through this week, though, watch what happens. Turns into almost a little bit more of a zonal pattern. Mild temperatures to the south, a little bit more uh, chilly air kind of filtering into the upper Midwest. and northern Great Lakes states, but as we head through and into next week and the following week, Look at this big area of some Arctic air coming on to the south. That is going to keep things well below average for the eastern half of the country. Meanwhile, big ridge building out west. That's going to keep the moisture away, unfortunately, and create those uh, very mild or warmer temps in a lot of those locations as well. So here's a look at Monday. Not much going on except our winter storm exiting through the north and east. Heavy rain with a little bit of a mix going on around the I-95 corridor and then uh, interior heavy snow falling just a little 
bit of a cold front starting to move its way and follow this system out as it does. That's the cold front there that's going to allow that cold air invade the southern states by late next week and by late this upcoming week. And it's going to remain sunny and high pressure over most of the uh, lower 48. Here's a look at uh, Wednesday, January 19th. We've got another clipper system here in the uh, north. We're going to be looking at that cold front diving to the south and along with it some rain out in front. Meanwhile, dry back in the west and the same thing goes for Friday. That cold front now into Florida, colder air all the way down into the southern states as rain along the Gulf Coast and the East Coast as well. So temperatures this week below average for the eastern uh, two thirds of the country and above normal back there in the west and for precip right along the uh, the eastern coast here. That is where we're going to be dealing with above normal uh, precip and then below normal right through the plain states and back there to the west. We'll have more on that forecast as we head into next week coming up later on. Time. Thanks, Matt. Well, USDA releasing several reports this weekend. While there weren't any major surprises, there are quite a few changes that are worth watching. Arlen Suderman, as well as USDA's chief economist, Seth Meyer, join me next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, a big week this week when it comes to several USDA reports. So on the show this weekend, we have Seth Meyer, chief economist at USDA, as well as Arlen Suderman of Stone X Group. Arlen, when you look at all of these reports that we received from USDA on Wednesday, what was the biggest surprise to you? It is really a pretty tame report overall as far as surprises go. Uh, so if there's any market moving surprise in there, I would say twofold, uh, one that USDA did not reduce soybean exports in this report. And I'm sure they had the reasons for not doing that, but I was a little bit surprised by that looking at the data. But the other one was uh, the increase in soft red winter wheats um, acreage in the wheat seedings acreage report. Uh, basically our intel was saying that uh, particularly in the Eastern Midwest, that we were seeing reduced acreage and said we had the big increase in acreage, especially in Ohio particularly when most of that wheat acreage is concentrated it really in the northwestern part of the state. And you look at Michigan, you look at Indiana, they were down, not questioning the methodology of USDA, just saying we were really surprised by the, their survey results. And I think the trade was as well, and the market responded accordingly. Yeah, Seth, so let's go to Arlen's first point about South America. You know, when we look at a lot of these private estimates that are coming out right now, we're continuing to see those estimates decline as far as production goes, citing weather concerns. We've seen the markets respond. So why did USDA not make a bigger adjustment when it comes to South American production? So when we do this, we take assess damage that's occurred to date. So kind of our, our thought about what drought effects have occurred to date. But we assume normal weather going forward. Some of the other analysts, analysts may consider continued drought, may consider other aspects. Obviously, we separate things geographically as well, too. So there are some offsets where things may look good in certain regions and bad in others, and we balance those out. But it's a normal weather forecast going forward, and we'll continue to evaluate it. And this is the kind of what we assess damage to date with normal weather. Now, we also received, Arlen, a look at final 2021 production numbers, okay? And so, you know, since this is the final report, we didn't see USDA make really many adjustments when it came to yield or production from November to December. Was there anything there that shocked you, despite the fact that, you know, Arlen, besides, you know, drought and some of those things that we've had in the country, we still produced a record corn yield this year? 
Yeah, I don't think there was anything really shocking me from the USDA report. I think it's a little bit more surprising how well the crops performed in the northwestern Midwest uh, with the drought conditions. I think that speaks a lot to the seed technology we have today. I think it speaks a lot to uh, the mechanical precision that we have in seed placement, et cetera, and just the farmer abilities use technology to help the crops be able to handle the adversity. So you look at the amount of stress that the crops are in in the Northwestern Midwest and where we ended up, uh, I think it's really impressive what we're able to do. But the bottom line is that means the trade's gonna be reluctant to believe drought stories uh, going forward. And, and perhaps that's some of that's influence in South America right now as well, is how bad does it have to get before we have a legitimate short crop like we've seen sometimes over history. Yeah, a, a good point. And, and Seth, as we talk about these final numbers, you know, we heard from some analysts saying, well, are these final numbers really final? When in the past, we've seen some adjustments made by USDA in that September grain stocks report. And it's taken that long to really understand what these final numbers are. Are these numbers out of USDA, these production numbers, are they truly final? Well, it's, it's, let me give you the answer. It's my best number right now. We always, there's always a chance of some administrative data going forward. Uh, providing some new information, but I have no reason to believe that this isn't the best number available. It certainly is the best number available now. So I'd say I, I don't anticipate a change, but it's always possible given what we've seen over the last couple of years and some of the unusual events. Yeah. And when you take a look at those final yields and production, is there anything that stood out to you uh, in those numbers, Seth? I, I just agree with Arlen, which is, you you know, uh, we, we talked a lot about drought north and west of Des Moines, Iowa, and yet Iowa did 205 bushel an acre in a year where some folks said parts of the state were under a lot of pressure. Record yields if you go straight east of there, all across those states. So again, I'd, I, I'd uh, agree with his comments that pretty good performance in some of those states on the edge of those drought areas. Yeah, and Arlen, I mean, it's not like we had the derecho and some of those things last year that took a while to really calculate. So are you confident in this final USDA report, production report that came out this week? Yeah, it fits pretty well with our customer surveys that we did. Our last customer survey was in November 1st, um, but those yields fit pretty well with what we saw. And uh, I think we're probably pretty close to the final numbers here. Um, you know, maybe there will be some adjustments September, but I wouldn't expect them to be significant at this point. All right. Thank you so much, Arlen. Well, what is really the market focused on now that we do have these USDA reports behind us? We'll talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, ransomware attacks hit parts of agriculture last year, even sending one major land and equipment auction offline for days. And John Phipps starts to dig into the issue this weekend in John's World. I think it's time to talk about the invisible cyber war underway between, well, everybody in the world. Let's begin with the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, or as it's usually known, North Korea. We'll need some basic information. To begin with, it is a desperately poor country of about 25 million citizens and a GDP of about $35 billion. Now contrast that with South Korea, which this satellite photo dramatically demonstrates. South Korea has a population about twice the size, with 50 million, with 60 times the GDP, $1.8 trillion. Despite having a very low per capita income, it has the largest army in the world when counting all the reserves and militia. North Korea's regular standing army is about the same size as the U.S. 
North Korea is about militarism, period. Its brutal dictatorial government by the Kim dynasty has created an essentially dysfunctional economy with severe shortages and minimal trade. This graphic shows their meager and frankly unusual exports. In the last decade, their desperate need for hard currency and economic growth has spawned a burgeoning cyber warfare capability. Exploiting their growing hacking skills, cybercrime against banks and economic institutions now generate a whopping 8% of their economy. This growth is possible by training military personnel as hackers who scour the internet for weaknesses. For example, last May, North Korean hackers temporarily brought Britain's massive National Health Service to a halt that was thwarted only by luck by a lone hacker. It almost stole a billion dollars from the Federal Reserve recently by hacking the Bangladesh National Bank. If not for a simple spelling error, they would have pulled it off but they still got away with over $80 million. Cyber warfare is an ideal weapon for North Korea for several reasons. You don't need massive resources like fleets. It is virtually anonymous. North Korean hackers used New Zealand computer system to launch massive malware attacks last year. Experts have trouble locating any good hacker, but North Korea's internet is restricted to high officials and the military, so they are effectively firewalled. Even if attack sources are pinpointed in North Korea, there are no foreign bank accounts to freeze or economic sanctions that we haven't already applied. Worst of all, they are getting better faster than expected. Their recent exploits with cryptocurrency are the latest example. North Korea is just one of the most notorious cyber warfare combatants. Next week, I'll talk about why this all matters to U.S. agriculture. Thanks, John. Well, coming up next, we say goodbye to a passionate tractor collector gone too soon. Tractor Tales is next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's January 18th online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Well, tractor collectors are all connected with a special bond. This week, we pay tribute to Kent Corbin, who's become a familiar face for many of you who tune in each weekend, as his love for tractors and his ability to restore show-stopping farmalls was truly a gift, and a gift that we were all able to enjoy. This 1256 took the place of the 1206. And uh, it was just another muscle tractor back there in the 60s. And it's one in my collection here, one of my favorites. I bought this one on a farm sale. It belonged to an older gentleman, and it was in real excellent shape. All I had to do was paint it. This one here, a lot of the, the parts are interchangeable. Uh, the only thing different on this one, this one here's got a, a bigger motor. It did the heavy tillage. It did the plow and the disc and the field elevating. At, in, in the 60s there, the, uh, these were the big tractors of that era. You know, they did all the heavy work. I like all red tractors, all farmall tractors. And uh, this is just one more. It's retired. It just does uh, shows and parades. And uh, that's all it does. Well, news of Kent's passing hit hard this week. You know, there are those people in life who just leave a lasting impression on anyone they meet. Kent was that person. 
Kent's actually from my hometown, and I have so many fond memories of Kent while growing up, as he always had just this uncanny ability to make you laugh. He was really an avid tractor collector, he, but he was also a staple at many of our local parades and tractor shows. But that love for tractors rivaled his passion for the cattle industry. A cattle producer, it was his passion for the beef industry that made a major impact. Kent Corbin was one of a kind, and he'll truly be missed. Marsha, John, and Neil, my thoughts are with you this weekend. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we explore the fertilizer price frenzy next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, fertilizer prices have skyrocketed this past year, but exactly what type of impact is the rapid rise of prices having on farmers' bottom line? Well, economists at Texas A&M's Agriculture and Food Policy Center recently explored just that, showing farmers are feeling financial pain from fertilizer prices. As farmers furiously try to price and source fertilizer ahead of the spring rush, Texas A&M's Agricultural and Food Policy Center releasing two major reports this week, both focused on fertilizer prices. You know, we kicked off with this official request from Congresswoman Letlow looking at what is the bottom line impact on producers. Bart Fisher is co-director of the Ag and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M, and he says even by using a conservative estimate of fertilizer prices up 50% for 2022, the Texas A&M study shows farmers are feeling financial shock. If you're a producer sitting here, you know, with no idea where prices are going to go in 2022, uh, but knowing that you're trying to finance your operations and, and contemplating getting a crop in the ground here very soon, you know, these are huge, huge considerations. And so if we want, it's no surprise why there is so much angst uh, among amongst ag, ag producers. Current spot market prices indicate the price of fertilizer will likely exceed 80% for the 2022 planting season. And economists say a 50% increase in fertilizer prices means feed grain producers will see an average cost increase of $128,000 from just fertilizer on their farm. And with the biggest share falling on rice producers at just over $62 per acre. So depending on what you're looking at, you know, fertilizer prices may have been, you know, uh, they may have doubled since last year. They may have been more, have, have more than doubled. And so one of the first charges we had was, well, you know, where do we expect things to go co going into 2022? Here's the key line. Given the farm safety net is not designed to address rapidly rising cost of production, there are growing concerns in the countryside about the need for additional assistance. End of quote. Well, Fisher says Texas A&M didn't provide a recommendation on how to relieve the fertilizer price pressure on farmers today. He says there is a framework already in place to provide direct payments. But it's not just price, it's also availability that's an issue. I think we can, you know, conclude it was about 40, you know, $42 an acre on average across everything that producers were facing just from fertilizer increases alone. And so CFAP, MFP, other things like that have provided a roadmap that I don't think Congress would have to recreate the wheel hill here if they chose to, to do something. The most recent Ag Economy Barometer from Purdue University found nearly 40% of farmers had some difficulty purchasing inputs for the 2022 season. From a regulatory side, the U.S. government could work with the railroads to prioritize the movement of fertilizer and de-emphasize, for example, the movement of coal. Uh, I've, I've heard that being talked about. 
A second report released this week from the Ag and Food Policy Center was commissioned by 21 state corn grower groups. As current NCGA president Chris Edgington says skyrocketing input prices are corn farmers' top concern right now. You're talking fertilizer price that's gone up somewhere close to $200 an acre for this next year for some producers and the revenue being generated is not, not offsetting that. Texas A&M says there are six main factors driving fertilizer prices today, including everything from increased demand, supply chain disruptions, as well as natural gas prices. But in the case of anhydrous ammonia, economists say the price increased $688 per ton from the end of 2020 through October 2021. And the increase in natural gas costs only accounted for $102 of that, or 15%. This study was largely led by my co-director, you know, Dr. Joe Outlaw here at this at the center. This report does is 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 puts that in context at roughly 15%, which then does raise a lot of questions about well then what else is driving it. Economists say a spike in nitrogen costs has the largest impact on corn farmers, costing the average corn producer $117 per acre. That's followed by rice at $97 and cotton and peanut producers seeing an average of $68 per acre in added costs just from fertilizer. There is a big, big cash flow crunch coming um, and and the banking industry is nervous about it as well um, as as they watch um, what has been a pretty good year for agriculture uh, could absolutely go completely backwards um, in this next growing season in a big way. Texas A&M's report shows an 80% rise in nitrogen prices will cost corn farmers an average of $52 per acre in 2022. And Texas A&M says that translates to roughly 32 cents per bushel that corn farmers need from either the government or markets to offset the rise in nitrogen costs. And Edgington says if tariffs get added to imported fertilizer, it could add another $100 per ton onto the price of fertilizer today. We understand some of the risks that we take in agriculture, but, but when people are asking for tariffs on top of what is already um, a, a price that is not acceptable for farmers to be able to, to try to make a living on, um, we have some problems with that, and that's that's why we're pushing back. NCGA says it's urging CF Industries and Mosaic to withdraw petitions that led to tariffs to the tune of 19% on imported fertilizers. And several commodity groups filed a case with the Court of International Trade. A ruling is expected later this year. You know, you're talking fertilizer that could be pushing 200% more than it was a year ago. That is a an economic decision maker shift in a price of one of our inputs. Um, and so it will have influence on um, people, whether they plant corn or soybeans or wheat or what their mixture is for this next year. Now, after the report, both Nutrient and the Fertilizer Institute pointed out that there are several supply and demand factors at play when it comes to today's fertilizer prices. And the Fertilizer Institute says 44% of fertilizers actually exported, which means that even domestic production is exposed to the global market. That compares to only 21% of global crops that are exported. You can read both of the reports that we talked about this weekend and also see the response from the fertilizer industry. That's on agweb.com. All right, well, as input prices and that discussion making its way up the chain at USDA, we'll talk about that next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. 
Joining us again, Seth Meyer, Arlen Suderman. All right, Seth, we just took a major look at those fertilizer reports that came out of Texas A&M's group this week. A lot of key findings there, but really the point that one farmer made is, listen, it's not just price, it's availability. Are there conversations happening at USDA right now, not only about the price impact farmers are seeing, but the questions about availability heading into a key time frame right now and really running out of time when it comes to spring planting? No, absolutely. So the secretary and I have had a couple conversations about looking at crop budgets and kind of going through um, uh, kind of a hypothetical or an extension crop budget, central Illinois, just for illustrative purposes, corn, soybeans going down the budget, looking at fertilizer costs, uh, chemistry, thinking about chemistry availability on each of the individual lines, you know, truck parts, et cetera, just look, running through them, trying to keep an eye on that and trying to keep aware of what producers are facing because they're really looking forward. They're already looking forward to putting that next crop in the ground and the expenses associated with it. Yeah. And so does realistically, does USDA acknowledge the fact that, listen, if commodity prices even stay where they are today and don't falter at all and, and fertilizer prices stay where they are today, that we could see net farm income fall back significantly in 2022. Is, is that something that, that is being discussed? So we're absolutely keeping an eye on it, right? Because you are seeing cost increases for this next crop, right? For the one that's going to go in the ground in the spring. And certainly if we, we, if we look at any softening of commodity prices, that'll put a return squeeze on. And that's a direct effect on uh, crop receipts and returns and, and farm income. So we're absolutely keeping an eye on that and uh, looking at where we're headed. Yeah, as we wait for this uh, perspective plantings report out of USDA Arlen, and we really look at South American weather and then debate acreage here in the US. Markets are always a factor as far as price, weather's always a factor, but this year, how big of a factor do you think input availability will end up being? Well, it's a significant factor, and we think that most farmers are gonna find what they need, what they desire to put on, at a higher price, which of course will eat in their bottom line. But so far the price structure favors them continuing to plant the corn acres. The market is working to stay at a high enough level to make sure we have 91 million acres of corn. That's kind of the, the baseline that we need to have to meet demand. And so far we're doing that. Okay, real quick, inflation, always also news about that when we saw CPI, we saw see inflation, uh, really they're saying the highest in, in, or the biggest increase in, in 40 years. So when you look at that, how much of was that a factor on the markets versus now looking past these reports in South American weather this week? Well, as we would look at the data, we would see that um, we would see that looking at the data that the price of corn is probably being managed. Supply and demand is being managed. It may be a buck to buck 50 higher than what it normally would be under these type of, of uh, supply and demand fundamentals. And soybeans may be a couple bucks above where it would be or a little bit more than that. So that suggests that in a high inflation period, and that's what we see over history, is when we're in an inflation period, the, a lot of money coming into the markets that hedge against inflation in their portfolios, we tend to manage supply at a higher level than we do in deflationary times. And um, so we anticipate that this is going to continue until the funds feel like they no longer need to have that ownership in their portfolios as they hedge against inflation. Right, Seth. Cattle, you know, you look at, at hay stocks, lowest since 2012 and 2013 is what USDA reports say. You know, we look at really, uh, we're seeing a, a contraction of the national cattle herd right now. Really, when you look at, at things contracting, you look at beef prices today, you know, what is the top concern for you as chief economist at USDA? 
So I'll be looking forward to the cattle report coming out here at the end of the month because we'll be looking both the availability of cattle to put on feed and then kind of the signals that we're getting from producers about retaining heifers and where we are in the in the uh, cattle contraction cycle. You know, when when we looked back a few months ago, you know, you, you're looking out there bottoming out sometime in 2024, 2025 in terms of overall production. So that's really important. I mean, the balance that we see between animal numbers and slaughter capacity is going to continue to shift as we, we go into this cattle contraction phase. And so I'll really be looking at that report, both in short run terms, in terms of how many cattle we have available to place on feed in 2022, and also where we are at in the cattle cycle. Yeah, and of course, we're still watching the increase in cases of COVID-19, really how that's impacting slaughter um, uh, rates across the country. So Seth, thank you for joining us this weekend. Arlen, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have a lot more to cover right here on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by January 31st with coupon code USFR for free shipping. Well, it's been a while since we've heard from Rob Sharkey, or who many of you know as Shark Farmer, but the Illinois farmer has a niche for really finding some of the most impactful stories across rural America, and he shares more in Shark Farmer stories this weekend. There's always been this argument is who should be telling the story of agriculture. I mean, we wanna get our story out there, but we are only 1% of the population maybe. Some say that it should only be farmers and ranchers that should speak for us. Others say, well, we should have more micros and dirty jobs in the world. Bottom line, farmers and ranchers are probably the most knowledgeable but we might not be the best at talking to our urban friends. Recently, I interviewed Jill Bosich from Temecula, California. Now she's an accomplished chef, but she's also a past member and a past coach of the U.S. Olympic culinary team. Never heard of the U.S. Olympic culinary team? I don't feel bad and neither did I. I was a little disappointed when I realized that it was just cooking because I really thought you'd have like some synchronized pancake flipping or maybe like the, the ski biathlon where they would ski up and then they could shoot the game or the javelin, that would be cool. You could javelin the game. That might not be the best for the kids. I'm thinking about it. A lot of, probably a lot of screaming, nightmares and stuff. Let's see, where was I? Oh. Besides being an amazing chef, Jill has also spent the last 19 years on a dude ranch. Now this is one of those dude ranches that's kind of a, a vacation place where the average person can go and they could learn how it's done. That's the way she started, but she's been there for 19 years. And after 19 years, she's kind of become part of the family. Now she has a true understanding of how much work goes into that steak that she's preparing. I'm, I'm nudging this little guy down the hill, and before you know it, we get him with the herd. He finds his mom, and we get him back down to camp. We treat it. About a couple months later, and there's that calf, and he's thriving, and he's picked up weight, and he's good to go. So I'm thinking, my God, what it takes to raise a, an animal to put a steak on your plate. It's just profound. And so those kinds of experiences just really crafted my mindset to where I endeavor to share with others how difficult it is to grow and raise our food. And as a chef, the appreciation that I have for it now is just immense. 
Now, Jill has amassed a very large and a very loyal audience on Facebook. These are the type of people that are making the decisions for the family when they go into the grocery store to buy food. These are the type of people that are voting on livestock bills that go to the public. These are the type of people that, because they watch Jill, now know how to respond when they're posting barbecue pictures on their Facebook page and their nephew gets on there and says, murderer, don't you know what you're doing? They now know how to respond to that. So who cares if Jill is a legitimate rancher or she's a chef or whatever you wanna call her? Because we know that she is a huge ally to agriculture. Now, if you wanna hear the rest of Jill's interview, go to sharkfarmer.com under the Shark Farmer podcast section, but also go to sharkfarmer.com and, and leave me your ideas for what Olympic events they should have in a culinary world. I really have no other reason than I just really want to hear the crazy ideas you all have. That's it. Thank you, Rob. And you can hear more from Rob by going to sharkfarmer.com. But when we come back, John Fix. It's time to stop changing time. Well, it's the great debate. Daylight saving time or no daylight saving time. And John Phipps stokes that debate even more in customer support this week. Got a great email last fall from Ray Schaefer in New Albany, Ohio, which I'm going to quote at length. 2021 Congressional Sunshine Protection Acts, H.R. 69 and S623. These bills make daylight savings time the new permanent standard time. This makes so much sense. There has been much discussion about this for a while, and yet it doesn't seem to get very far. It is the switching back and forth that causes the problems. Circadian rhythm disruptions increase car accidents, increase the risk of heart problems, and have long-term negative impacts on sleep habits, which can lead to other health issues. Clearly, people appear to react badly to changing daily routines, either forward or back. Animals, my dog included, do not switch easily, and again I am left struggling with this twice a year. If some things need to change because of differences in the amount of daylight and darkness throughout the year, then having adjusted summer and winter business hours could compensate rather than changing time for everyone. Many countries and territories have abolished annual time changes after observing them for many years, including Argentina, Brazil, Egypt, Hong Kong, Iceland, Iraq, Jamaica, Russia, Samoa, Sudan, Turkey, and Uruguay. I would like to see a bipartisan effort on this. Early this year, it looked promising, but as we approach the fallback date, I haven't seen much progress. Ray. I can only say amen. To be fair, I don't care whether it's standard or daylight savings time, just pick one already. All the reasons Ray mentioned against the twice annual disruption of our lives are valid and proven, but it is the importance of sleep patterns, which has been researched more recently, adding new weight to ending this practice. Chronobiologists, and yes, there are people who study the physiological effects of time, largely advise permanent DST rather than permanent standard time. DST was initiated when lighting was, both exp was expensive, both candles and incandescent, which hardly applies today. 
Despite many studies, almost no benefits and several economic and health penalties are caused by switching time. Regardless of which time is chosen, it will become standard time by definition. This would seem to be, like he said, a no-brainer bipartisan possibility to show cooperation. But as Ray mentioned, the struggle continues. Thank you, John. Well, there are a lot of winter meetings going on right now, and U.S. Farm Report is hitting the road, and we just may be at a meeting near you. That's next. Well, over the next few months, we are hitting the road with several live tapings and events, and we'd love for you to join us. Next week, we'll be at Murray State on Tuesday for the Soybean Promotion Day. Then the following week, we're heading to Lansing, Michigan for the Great Lakes Crop Summit. Now in February, we'll be at the annual Farm Journal's Top Producer Summit in Nashville starting February 14th. That same week, we'll then be in Louisville after a year off because we are going to the National Farm Machinery Show. Then to round out February, we're at the Northern Corn and Soybean Expo in Fargo. We'll also have a taping at Commodity Classic well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.